You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hi, everyone. Before I get started on today's episode, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has helped this show grow. Leaving ratings and reviews, telling friends about the show, all of that stuff makes a difference, and I really appreciate it. Now, if you could help me out with just one more thing. My network, Airwave Media, is conducting a listener survey right now. Taking a few minutes to fill out that survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave will help us get to know you and your interests so we can find sponsors that you might actually want to hear from. And it gives you the opportunity to give me a little bit of feedback to help me continue to grow and improve the show. As an added bonus, if you fill out that survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, You'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card as our way of saying thank you. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be focusing on paper. Now, if you've been listening throughout this season, you might recall I actually initially planned to have a paper episode earlier on. I actually initially planned to have two paper episodes. I even recorded two paper episodes. Unfortunately, I am the walking proof of Murphy's Law. That which can go wrong will go wrong, at least if I'm involved in any aspect of it. Last week, my computer crashed, and I seem to have lost a number of audio files, including an interview I recorded with my guest from True Ray Construction Paper. At this point, I'm going to try to push past this and kind of combine two episodes into one, covering watercolor and drawing papers, those fine art papers, and a little bit about construction paper, all in one mega episode. And hopefully, completing this episode will put an end to the curse that seems to be hovering over me right now. Around the year 100 CE, in Liang, China, a man named Kai Lun declared that he had invented a new method for creating paper. Now, some people will actually say that he completely invented paper, full stop, but archaeologists have found fragments of papers dating back to the 3rd century BCE. Kailun developed a method using the pulp of bark, probably from a mulberry tree, old rags, nets, hemp waste. All of these seemingly garbage elements were shredded, soaked, and mixed into a pulp. Then he pressed out the liquid and hung the sheets out to dry. His paper made from discarded scraps was more portable than bamboo and wooden slips that had been used as an earlier writing surface. As they say, necessity is the mother of invention. 
Just as Kai Lun developed his papermaking technique to solve the problems of heavy and cumbersome writing surfaces, the contemporary American artist, Jen Stark, was doing some creative problem solving with limited options when she began making her innovative paper sculptures. In an early interview, Jen Stark described studying abroad in Europe when she was in art school. Like most college students, she had very little money. She could only bring two suitcases with her for the five-month stay in France, forcing her to pack her clothing with the plan to buy art materials when she arrived. At that time, the euro was worth quite a bit more than the American dollar, making everything a bit more expensive. She turned to the cheapest material she could find, a pack of construction paper, and she decided to get creative with that. Stark carefully and meticulously cuts shapes from colored papers. She uses an X-Acto knife, hand-cutting organic sheets one sheet at a time, and then stacking them. The colors are bright and bold with layer upon layer of paper, creating a psychedelic effect as looking into the work is like peering into a wormhole to another dimension. The overall effect is almost overwhelming in the best way possible. Her sculptures are mesmerizing, and yet the process is relatively simple. She says she starts by sketching in her sketchbook. She writes words along with the drawings until she has worked out the idea, and then she begins to create the piece. She says, quote, I cut precise shapes in construction paper or cardstock, then fold and stack them into crazy sculptures. Everything is piece by piece. No laser cutters, just an X-Acto knife, and sometimes a ruler or compass so I can make sure my lines don't go too crazy, end quote. There's something beautiful in the simplicity and directness of the process. When I first saw her work, it reminded me of op art and psychedelic art because of the colors and patterns with contrast that can feel like it's short-circuiting the rods and cones in our eyes. But it's more than that. In a way, it feels like she's creating a new sort of mandala out of construction paper. There's something quiet and soothing about looking through these tunnels of cut paper. And I think I'm not the only one who sees it. Stark describes her words in a way that feels very zen to me. She says, quote, For me, the act and process of creating art is just as important as the final product. My art practice is very meditative and brings me to a trance-like state when I'm creating, especially with very repetitive tasks. Art is an expression of my inner fantasies, dreams, and thoughts. Creating art pushes me to brainstorm and challenge myself, which is very therapeutic and helps me understand myself better. With much of my work, I'm diving into questions about the universe and consciousness and trying to understand what it's all about and why it exists. I'm trying to reach that transcendental state through artwork. End quote. Now, this is the part where I would normally say, after the break, we're going to talk to somebody from True Ray Construction Paper to learn how the paper is made, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, as I said, that interview got lost. 
So I will summarize a couple of the key points I would want you to understand. There are different grades of construction paper. Uh, One of the things we know about it is there are different weights of it. The weight has to do with how heavy that paper would be when bundled in reams of 500 sheets. And it's, I think, in the pre-cut sizes of the, the just massive sheets that they've got. But all of that with the weight has to do with the thickness or the caliper of the paper. That was one of the vocab words that I learned from my interview. Another thing that I learned is when you're looking at construction paper, not all construction papers are the same. And that's not just in terms of the thickness or the weight of the construction paper, but also the material that goes into it. Some construction papers are going to be made of a wood pulp and they're going to be using different dyes. Pretty much all construction papers are dyed in the in the pulp phase. So the dye is going through all the fibers of that construction paper. But one of the things that makes True Ray construction paper hold up so well is that it is a sulfite construction paper. It's a mixture of different materials, different blends. I think True Ray is a sulfite that's uh, 50% recycled material, which always appreciate a good green paper green in the environment, but I guess I enjoy a green colored paper as well. But the main point there is that there are different types of woods and other materials that go into different types of papers. And that's going to affect the quality. That's going to affect the texture of it. That's going to affect how well it creases, how well it folds, how well it holds its form and how well it holds up over time. Now, True Ray tends to hold up really well over time. It, in my experience, doesn't fade, or at least doesn't fade very quickly. But the biggest thing to understand to take care of your papers is sunlight is the enemy of your colored papers. The sunlight, that UV radiation, is what's going to cause it to fade. And so a good tip as you're trying to preserve your construction papers is to keep it out of direct sunlight. Many people will keep their construction papers in a closed cabinet or sometimes even just like hang a sheet or a curtain in front of the shelving that has your construction paper on it because the light is what's going to cause the dyes in various papers to break down and fade. Now, after the break, I'm going to share the interview that I didn't lose with Sarah Prentice from Canson, the makers of some of my favorite fine arts papers. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, 
so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now joining me, I have Sarah Prentice uh, from Canson Art Papers. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk papers. So um, just first off, a lot of people think of papers like all papers are equal, but if you've ever tried using watercolors on copy paper, you know it is a nightmare. Can you just give us an idea of the different types of papers that are out there? Yes, for sure. So as as an artist myself and a self-proclaimed paper nerd, I can confirm that not all papers are created equal. Um, art papers exist for a reason, and you can find a huge range of surfaces for different types of art medias and styles, including sketch paper, drawing paper, Bristol, mixed media, watercolor, charcoal, pastel, marker, tracing, tone, canvas paper, acrylic paper, oil paper, the list goes on. So each one is different with varying surface types and weights and different performance characteristics to work for the intended media. So can you just let us know, like, maybe pick one of those types of papers. Like, how are they made? I mean, I I would guess there's probably a lot of similarities, but maybe some differences in the types of woods or pulps that are going into it. Like, how does it all come together? Yep. Okay. So at Canson, we make our papers on what's called a forgeneer machine. Um, And the process is that it starts when pulp is mixed with a lot of water and an additive called sizing and they all get mixed together in um, a the pulper and it's almost like a big giant blender and the mixture gets mixed up and then from there it gets measured out and metered out onto like a giant wire mesh screen that's sort of moving along like a conveyor belt Um, and the thickness of the paper is determined here at this process where it's getting metered out onto the screen however much pulp that you're laying down um, you can like control how thick or thin the paper is going to be and then as as the pulp is moving across this wire mesh screen it's sort of shaking side to side to start to drain some of the water and also distribute the fibers evenly into a single layer Um, and then it starts moving along the the mesh screen into giant rollers where water continues to drain and the paper is starting to dry out a little bit Um, and then it dips into something called the sizing bath and that is that applies a coating to the sheet to control how it reacts to moisture Um, and then it goes through some pressure rollers called the calendar stack Um, and it gets spun onto a big giant finished roll of paper that weighs like tons and from there it gets sent on to be trimmed down into um, its final format that it's going to be trimmed into and I can cover what sizing is because I mentioned sizing that goes into the into the paper at different points of the process. So if you want thank, me to cover that, I can. Thank you. I was going to ask for clarification on if you could define what sizing is and, and how it affects the paper. Yes. So sizing is an additive that goes into paper to control how it reacts to, to moisture. And our papers have two types of sizing. There's internal sizing and external sizing. Um, and the internal sizing is what gets added at 
at the beginning of the paper making process in the pulper that gets mixed in with the pulp. Um, and then external sizing is coats the paper and is applied towards the end of the paper making process. And the amount and type of each sizing that gets added is going to depend on the paper type that is being made. So if a paper had no sizing at all, it would react to moisture like a paper towel and just soak everything up. Um, and like a watercolor paper, for example, you'd want to have heavy amounts of internal and external sizing to handle moisture properly. So if it didn't have the internal sizing, it would buckle and curl. And if it didn't have the external sizing, the surface would not be very strong and it would pill as you're and break apart as you're like moving a brush across it. So again, it's all about the intended use of the paper and, and balance for, for what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah, as you were talking about the sizing, my first thought was of the watercolor paper. But then I started thinking about other types of papers that I use for other media. And a common term that I was always taught to look for as I'm choosing my papers and stuff like that, my art teacher would talk about the tooth of the paper, right? Can you talk a little bit about, like, first, what is the tooth of the paper? And why are some papers smoother and others more rough? Like, What's the difference there and what are we looking for with different media? Yeah, yep. So um, tooth is really just sort of the texture of the sheet. Um, and there's several ways to create that texture or tooth on the paper. Um, one way is to use what's called a dandy roll. Um, and a dandy roll is a big giant roller that um, imparts a pattern on to the paper. Oh, that sounds delightful. I'm just picturing like, <laughs> so I'm just picturing now a, like a cartoonish roller dressed like an 18th century person and fancy doilies and stuff like that. But I, I get it. A dandy roller is adding some of the texture. Sorry to interrupt with my childish imagination. There. <laughs> no, I love it. That's good. Well, we're artists, right? We, we're always imagining things, aren't we? Um, no, they're, I mean, they are great. They, um, and they're also, dandy rolls are what can make a watermark on a sheet too. Um, so it can like press into the, into the sheet and make a watermark. Um, but usually you would use dandy rolls for things like charcoal papers, pastel papers, acrylic, um, those that have like a really pronounced and distinct um, surface texture. Um, but not all papers get their texture from a dandy roll. Sometimes they get their tooth from what's called a marking felt. Um, and this is basically like a giant wool blanket that presses up against the surface of the paper as it's running along the machine. And those are used more for things like vellum, drawing papers, mixed media papers, where there's some tooth, but the pattern's a little bit more random and not as like deep and pronounced as what a dandy roll would produce. Um, and you can also, there's a third way you can sort of adjust the, the tooth or the surface of the paper. And that's at the end of the paper making process, when it goes through those pressure rollers I mentioned earlier called the calendar stack. Um, this is literally where you can change the amount of pressure that's applied to the paper as it's rolling through. And you can um, essentially smush the sheet if you want a really, really smooth surface, like a Bristol Smooth or a marker paper, you can apply a lot of pressure and it's basically just um, smushing all those fibers down so that then when it comes out, it's like a really super smooth surface. Okay, so you've already kind of started to allude to this. Um, I always like to start to shift towards the practical advice for working in our studios with the materials. and. 
what I'm hearing is we want a smoother paper for things like markers where we're working with ink that we want to glide across the surface, but we want the, the sort of um, rougher texture, more of that tooth of the paper. When we're doing something like I think of the soft pastels where I want to have those little indentations in the surface, little sort of pits for the pigment to gather in and um, to control the spread of those dusts and things like that. But can you talk a little bit about what makes these fine art papers so special? Like when I'm making my prints and drawings, I spend a lot of money on museum grade archival papers. Can you tell the listeners, like, what does that mean? What makes it a higher quality paper worth investing in? Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's important to uh, um, invest in higher quality papers when you feel ready because that's going to affect ultimately the results that you are going to get and instead of fighting against your materials they're going to be working with you which ultimately relieves unnecessary frustration in the art making process um you know i've already talked about specific papers are made for specific media and if you match them up um, properly it's just going to help your process altogether um, and if you're investing your time to create a piece of art you don't want materials to get in the way of a good outcome so um, quality materials are something that's going to stand the test of time under the right conditions and um, work for you and not against you um, and so anything that well actually this kind of goes back to um, different types of pulp and trees and things that are used to make fine art papers there's two main types of fibers that get used to make paper, um, and that's cotton or wood fibers. Um, you can, there are some other alternative surfaces or fibers that you can use like hemp, for example, but wood and cotton are the most common. Um, and cotton papers are made with either linters from the cotton plant or with rags, um, which are leftovers from the textile mills. Um, and cotton fibers make the softest, strongest, and most archival papers, which is typically why they cost a little bit more. But if you're at the point in your art where you know you're making a finished piece that you want it to be, you know, the best materials that can be made on and you want it to stand the test of time, it's worth investing in a cotton paper. Um, that said, Wood fibers can also create really lovely art papers that perform beautifully and will stand the test of time in the right conditions. Um, wood fibers come from two different types of um, trees, hardwood and softwood. Hardwood trees are the leafy trees like elms, maple, birch, um, and they have shorter, dense fibers that provide strength for the paper. And then softwood trees are the needle trees like pine and spruce, and they provide long, strong, um, fluffy fibers that provide some bulk to the paper. Um, so when we make our papers, we use a combination of both hardwood and softwood um, fibers to get the best of both worlds, strength and bulk. Um, and then when we when we when we make those papers, when we're making the pulp, um, wood fibers contain lignin, which over time can cause papers to yellow and deteriorate. So all the lignin is removed during the paper making process um, to make sure that they stay on the test of time and remain archival um, and the way that you can check for this is to just make sure it says acid free um, and most most fine art papers are going to be acid free i absolutely love that because like the the nerd in me loves to get deep into the weeds <laughs> on all of these different topics and i 
I thought I kind of had known a bit about this stuff. Like I, I had known a little bit about how like, oh, well the cellulose is dissolved in the water to make the pulp and stuff like that. Like I knew a little bit about how papers are formed, but I never knew about the differences in the fibers from different trees. And it makes perfect sense that different types of wood are gonna have different characteristics in the fibers, but um, you know, me as just the the simple man was always just like ah just take all the scraps throw it in a blender we're good um, <laughs> i appreciate that now i have a little bit more depth to my knowledge on this so thank you for that yeah now my pleasure. getting back to some of the simpler more common frustrations to my classroom you know when when i paint on a paper gets wet tends to warp how can I and my students keep our papers flat? What kind of paper do we need to get for wet media? Sometimes papers will curl or buckle when they get wet because the fibers are expanding when water gets applied and then contracting as the sheet is drying. So the best way to avoid that is to start with a heavy paper that's intended for wet media, like a watercolor paper or mixed media paper. Usually 140 pounds, 300 GSM or up is if you're going to be applying water to it and the sizing in those papers are going to help counteract the expanding and contracting of the fibers because it was made specifically to handle wet media. Um, you could also consider stretching your paper first. You know you're going to be applying a lot of water to it um, and stretching the paper is almost like giving it a bath before you use it. So what you do is you soak the entire sheet um, fully immersed into a tray filled with water like a bath or you could generously wet both sides of the paper with a brush um, and then you let it dry and then once it's dry you can paint on it just like you normally would and it should stay nice and flat because all the fibers have already gone through that process of expanding and contracting so they won't do it again when you re-wet the paper. Interesting. See, I had always thought like, you know, if I get heavyweight paper and watercolor paper I'm fine. I had never thought to pre-soak and then dry my papers that that's a brilliant tip yeah might be something to try next time and then can i just can i just go back for um clarity you talked about like 140 pound paper and then you said something gsm um that's just for our metric friends right the gsm like the g is for grams yes so for me, the takeaways here as I'm looking for paper would be just the shortcuts I'd look for are watercolor paper for watercolors. I want to look for heavier weight, whether that's measured in pounds or grams. And acid-free is going to tend to hold up better over time. It's not going to yellow all that. Do you have any yes. other tips or tricks for aspiring artists? Anything we should know about getting our best papers? Yeah, so, well, and actually to wrap that up about if you do have a warped paper or a buckled paper there is a method um, that you can try where you carefully spritz the back of your paper not your art but you can spritz it with a spray bottle and get it damp um, and then lay it down on a clean flat surface art side down and then you put a little piece of paper or you cover it with a sheet of paper and then a stack of like heavy books or something heavy that covers the whole thing and you let it sit for a few days and then once it dries and you come back it should be much flatter and stay flatter than than what it was before but you just have to be careful not to get it like soaked and not to get your art on the front side soaked 
That's a great tip as well. So when our papers do curl up, we can spray it, get a little bit wet to loosen up the fibers, I presume, and yep. then weight it down and it will, um, it'll sort of flatten as it dries over the course of a couple yes. of days. Um, so I guess my final two takeaways, it's best to start off with good materials. It makes the process <laughs> easier, but yep. If you do have those problems, all hope is not lost. There are always things you can do to fix it. Um, and I guess that's probably the thing that most of my students need to hear. Art is a process of reflection and revision and correction and improvements over time. Yes. I have two mantras that I keep in mind when I'm doing art, and I think it's helpful for artists to find one that speaks to them and works for them when they're doing art. Um, and my first is, practice makes progress and I personally like this better than practice practice makes perfect because perfect's not possible and it's boring anyways but the more you practice the more you learn and you're going to find your style and understand materials better and how they work together um, and the second one is little by little a little becomes a lot um, and this is a phrase that's been around but I've heard it from this like crazy talented colored pencil artist named Heather Rooney and she creates these amazing hyper-realistic masterpieces with her pencils and it takes a lot of time and patience um, and I personally am an impatient artist and I want to see results right away um, so I forget to enjoy the process which is like the point and like one of the main reasons for doing art is to enjoy it so to stay present I repeat to myself little by little a little becomes a lot it helps me get through that ugly phase of the piece without giving up because sometimes there is that ugly phase where you're thinking I should stop but if you just keep plugging away little by little sometimes it works itself out sometimes not but practice makes progress <laughs> I, I love that. that And that feels like it's the theme of this season of ArtSmart. As I'm talking to different supply makers and even different artists I've interviewed to get the background information, everybody seems to have this insight that art is a process of discovery, of experimentations and revisions and reflection and incremental progress. And I think that is a wonderful note to end on. And I appreciate that even though you're making fine art papers that are, you know, the best of the best, you also recognize that there's room for all sorts of materials and you can make the most of any materials that you have. And it's, it's good at different stages of our development and our artistic process. Um, but I wanna end always with that note of positivity and acknowledge that you have been generous in sharing your time and your expertise with me. So once again, a big thank you, Sarah Prentice um, of Canson Art Papers. Thank you so much for having me. Now, since this is a supersized episode, I'm going to share one more art history story about paper. In San Francisco's Museum of Modern Art, visitors flock to get a look at a blank paper produced by three of the 20th century's greatest artists. And after the break, I'm going to tell you all about it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I said, in SF MoMA, there's a blank paper on display. Willem de Kooning created a drawing, Robert Rauschenberg erased it, and Jasper Johns helped with the presentation, adding the title card and a frame for a piece called Erased de Kooning. In 1953, Willem de Kooning was one of the top artists on the scene. His work was highly valued in his day and still today. I mean, a Willem de Kooning painting will auction for tens of millions of dollars, even into the hundreds of millions of dollars. But one day in 1953, a 27-year-old Robert Rauschenberg came knocking on Willem de Kooning's door. The two had met before, and they were on friendly terms, but that day, Rauschenberg was hoping de Kooning wouldn't be home. He was nervous because it wasn't just a social visit. Robert Rauschenberg had come to request a drawing from de Kooning. This in and of itself wasn't such an odd request. Artists often give each other works, but typically an artist might ask a friend for a work they admired to hang it in their studio. But Robert Rauschenberg didn't want to look at de Kooning's drawing. He wanted to erase it. As you can imagine, Willem de Kooning was not thrilled at the odd request. After what Rauschenberg has since described as an awkward and at times tense conversation, de Kooning agreed. In Rauschenberg's telling, Willem de Kooning began thumbing through his portfolio. He pulled out a piece, looked at it, and said, No, it needs to be something I would miss. He then pulled out a second portfolio and began looking for the perfect work to give over to be obliterated. It's interesting to think of creating a work of art by destroying something. I suppose you could say on some level that's what artists throughout time have been doing, grinding up materials into dust to make pigments that turn into paint, or the sculptor chipping away at a block of marble that the earth created in order to get down to David or whatever figures lurking inside. Still, this one feels a little different. Robert Rauschenberg wore through numerous erasers as he carefully and meticulously removed every trace he could of Willem de Kooning's drawing. Ultimately, when people come look at the final piece, They're looking at essentially a blank paper with some faint smudges and indentations. Light, almost imperceptible traces of a drawing that no longer exists. For many, this seems like just a simple case of iconoclasm, a young artist making a name for himself by taking a shot at a bigger artist on the scene. I used to think of it that way. Before I began my research for this episode, I thought this piece was just mean. I mean, one artist erasing another one's drawing? 
I wouldn't tolerate that from a child in my classroom, so why is this behavior celebrated from a grown man? For one, erased de Kooning wasn't just some guy erasing a drawing. There was also the guy who labeled and framed it. Robert Rauschenberg erased the drawing, but Jasper Johns labeled the piece, framed it, and put it up in a gallery. Still, as I've said so many times, with a great work of art, there's always more than meets the eye. In the early 1950s, Robert Rauschenberg was making a name for himself in the art world. He did a series of black paintings and a series of white paintings. They were simply white paint on white canvas. There's no image, just white on white. The intention with these pieces was to create a meditative work. It's kind of like when the world around you is suddenly quiet for a moment. You become more aware of every tiny little noise that would normally go unnoticed. But when you stand in front of a blank white canvas, you become aware of the light and shadows hitting it. You begin to notice the surface qualities, the texture, even the dust in the air between you and that canvas. There's a stillness to it. It's the visual equivalent of pausing to take a breath. Rauschenberg was looking for a way to push that series even further. The natural question, of course, is what could be more empty than a blank white canvas? He loved to draw. At first he thought he could make a drawing and then erase it. He tried it, but he realized it just didn't work. If he created something with the intention of destroying it, then the drawing was always to be temporary, like a sand mandala, and he didn't want an ephemeral piece. He wanted a piece that evoked a sense of loss, because the thing that is more empty than a blank canvas is a canvas or a paper where something used to be. De Kooning was right. It needed to be something he would miss. It needed to be something the world would miss. It needed to be a real work of art by an established artist. And that is why he went to Willem de Kooning, the greatest artist he knew. De Kooning made him work for it, though. The drawing was mixed media with pencil, charcoal, crayon, and ink. Robert Rauschenberg had to be invested in the process of erasing. He said he didn't know how many erasers he wore through, but it took him about two months. After those two months, all that was left was a blank page with a few faint smudges to show that a drawing used to be there. It's no longer a pure white canvas. It's not a space to pause and take a breath. It's not a pristine sheet ready to be developed. It's a space where a drawing by one of the 20th century's greatest artists used to be. It leaves us to wonder what masterpiece was destroyed. Ironically, I think in a way, erasing the drawing preserved and enhanced de Kooning's legacy. It created an aura of mystery about what that work was. And who doesn't love a good mystery? Now, we may have many of Willem de Kooning's works to look at and enjoy, but tastes change. Works go in and out of fashion. Anything created with physical media will change over time, colors fade, and all of that. 
but a good mystery will always keep an audience hooked. We have erased de Kooning to examine and wonder about. It's forever preserved as a masterpiece. The greatest drawing in the history of the world could have been lost, or it lives on forever with the limitless potential of the viewer's imagination. ArtSmart was written, recorded, mixed, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. Special thanks this week to Sarah Prentice from Canson Art Papers. And a big thank you to Lori Nelson from True Ray Construction Paper for helping me in the research in this episode, even if I did lose her interview. The background music you've been enjoying throughout this episode was created by Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. If you enjoy ArtSmart, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend about the show. ArtSmart is an airwave media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.